you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Mr. President, I'm here. I voted for you. Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun. He's going to shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've got to do something. All right, Lee. Time to become an American hero. former New York State Assemblyman, was the gadfly of the Warren Commission. He demanded the right to appear before it as a defense counsel for the dead Lee Harvey Oswald. Refused, he began his own investigation of the president's death, a study that produced first the best-selling attack on the Warren Commission, Rush to Judgment, and now a movie of the same name. Mark Lane has lectured all over the world on his own theories of the assassination, theories which he spelled out for Bill Stout. There was one conclusion, one basic conclusion that the commission reached, I think, which can be supported by the facts. And that was the commission's conclusion that uh, Ruby killed Oswald. But of course, that took place on television. It would have been very difficult to deny that. But outside of that, there's not an important conclusion which can be supported by the facts, and, and this is the problem. But Mr. Lane, who accuses the commission of playing fast and loose with the evidence, does not always allow facts to get in the way of his own theories. As for Mr. Brim, Eddie Barker discovered that he holds no brief, either for the grassy Noel theory or for the use of his words by Mark Lane. Well, now, some critics of the Warren Report have taken your testimony or interviews with you uh, to indicate that you thought the shots came from behind the fence over there. What about that? Well, it, uh, sir, it, it was not a number of critics. It was one critic, Mark Lane, who takes very great liberties with adding to my quotation. I never said that the any shot came from here like I was quoted by Mr. Lane. Uh, Mr. Lane would like me to have positively identified the what I saw fly over here as skull, although I told him I could not. I did not examine. I thought it was, but I could not. So he has added his interpretations to what I said, and uh, consequently that's where the story comes from that, that I said that a shot come from up there. No shot came from up there at any time during the whole fiasco that afternoon. Nor are these the only examples of Mr. Lane lifting remarks out of context to support his theories.
attorney, Mark Lane, who went to Jonestown on an independent investigation, told me on October 3rd that no one is being held by the People's Temple against his will. They're told that this person wants to leave the American Embassy and the First Consul, who I believe is related to the Central Intelligence Agency, goes there with a car, has an individual meeting with the individual involved, and says, and they've repeated this to me, both the Embassy and the people involved, here's a car, there's no one to stop you. If you like, come in the car. We will drive you back. We have a plane waiting. We'll fly you to Georgetown. There's a ticket, and we'll pay for your flight right back to your home, and no one can stop us. Do you want to go? And they say, no, I don't want to go. Tonight, Lane has become part of the mystery. As the lawyer for the settlement, he had written Leo Ryan recently, threatening lawsuits if the temple was maligned by Ryan's investigation. Lane was with Ryan during yesterday's massacre, but today... He is reported missing. Melody Beck, Channel 5 Eyewitness News. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 107 of the Lone Gummit Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Clark, and with me here today is author of Two Princes and a King, which you can find at Amazon, Kindle and Paperback, and proprietor of the Neapolis Media Group, Mr. Carmine Sabastano, who joins me. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good. How you been, Rob? Great. Couldn't be better. I just love, <laughs> I love listening to funny, funny audio, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do a pretty funny show sometimes, I, I think. We have and, our moments. <laughs> yeah, we have our moments. And, uh, you know, so do a couple other shows. I was kind of, uh, you know, picking on the old uh, JKF show that Fetzer does over there with uh, uh <laughs> Gary King and, and Larry Rivera and uh, Don Fox. And uh, they've been doing this piece recently where, well, Jim DiEugenio from Black Op Radio, he wrote this thing of, of uh, the rise and fall of Jim Fetzer. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I briefly, I saw something about that, but I don't, I'm sure, you know, you can, I'll learn a few things listening to you about it. <laughs> I don't blame you for not reading it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I think they're on like part four on the JKF show. Um, mm -hmm. This is four hours worth of rebutting Jim DiEugenio's article point by point. It's riveting radio. <laughs> That's her answering I, his, his <laughs> self about why he has not risen and fallen off. It's, uh, it's riveting or it just feels like rivets being driven into your head listening to Fetzer for that long. Yeah. That's a little <laughs> more accurate. And, uh, you know, I actually heard vaguely a reference to myself on Black Op Radio this week. Sadly, they didn't give me any credit or mention the name of the show, but one of their listeners asked Jim DiEugenio if, you know, he had heard my podcast and uh, was wondering if there's any validity to, um, you know, Frazier bringing Oswald to work every day. And, uh, <laughs> G Eugenio kind of dismissed it, and uh, no, I, I really don't think he, he's more of a macro guy, you know, instead of a micro guy. You know, when it comes to like specifics of things, you know, he's not too keen on them because this was his answer. Well, I don't think Oswald, or I don't think Frazier took Oswald to work every day. It was just certain days because Oswald had a bus pass. That was it. That was his answer. Uh, because Oswald had a bus pass, he doesn't think Frazier brought him to work every day. Well, I mean, 
it's possible. I don't think that, that rules out the fact, though, that he could have driven with Frazier consistently quite a lot of time. I mean, you know, you can only go off of what you have from the witnesses saying and what the evidence says. So, I mean, it's also there's also a lot of other possibilities that could come out of it. But you know, it's not like you can lay that as a dismissal. You know, it doesn't really dismiss your ideas about Frazier or you know what his comments were. Well, no, nor the other five eyewitnesses that said he did. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and of course, none of that got mentioned. But it is what it is, and and, and then you know. He writes this scathing, scathing review of of uh, Caulfield's new book, General Walker and the Murder of, of President Kennedy, and it, I mean it was brutal. Did you did you get a chance to read that? I did read a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. I did, I, once again, like the other article, as you know, I try to keep my head down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get involved when I need to, but uh, previous engagements that you and I and others, you know, trying to keep people credible, you know, sometimes it's just a black hole where they want to argue for the end of time, you know, yeah. despite the fact that you've just proven what they've said. <laughs> well, I think part of it is, you know, if the CIA, if it doesn't mention the CIA or Alan Dulles, then, then Eugenio is going to shred your, shred your book. And, you know, how fair is that? But yeah, no, there's, uh, you know, I think everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people do have preconceived notions that they're staunchly defending rather than sometimes just realizing, you know, we are all going to be wrong at points. It's so much easier just to admit that you're wrong or admit that you don't have definitive proof. A lot of people like to claim that they have definitive proof when they don't. No one has the smoking gun. If they did, they would have come out with it and they'd be famous and have written a book. True, true. So. You know, we're, we're all just trying to put the pieces together that we have access to. And sometimes when the pieces won't fit in a logical manner, some people try to shove them into the puzzle. <laughs> well, well, we'll just leave it at that. And uh, we'll <laughs> just know we're listening. That's all. And uh, today, why I, wanted you have, why I wanted to have you on the show, Carmine, is we're going to be talking about one of the most iconic figures associated with the case and that is mr mark lane yes he's very well known throughout the case has been ever since he uh started to disagree with the commission at public events in the 60s and eventually wrote a best-selling book and did at least two movies that i know of and uh, i think he wrote at least four four to six books right now of course, I wasn't around, and neither were you, when um, back in the you know the early '60s when all this was happening, you know, in chronological order here. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably like me, you know, became acquainted with the work of Mark Lane much much later, and you know we have to yeah. look, we're looking back at it. But um, when I first after my one of my hiatuses from JFK research, you know, I took. Took took a couple years off there for a little while, you know, just to clear my mind and get the hell away from it for a little while, and then you slowly come back, you know. Cause sometimes you need to take a little break. But mm-hmm. uh, I remember I came. I was Mark Lane's last book, The Last Word. Okay, I remember hearing that this was coming out and it was going to be this, you know, this this great book, and it's you know he's finally going to name names and and this that and the other and have all this proof. So I said, okay, well, let me go get this book and I'll get, you know, stick my feet back in the water here again. And 
I read the book and I have never been so disappointed in a, with a book. <laughs> I think in my entire life, I mean, it was, I don't know if you've read it or not, but it was a brutal, brutal letdown. No, I never read it, but I would contend that there are probably a couple other people's books in the community we might be able to think of that were worse. I don't know. I honestly <laughs> don't know. I mean, this is, you know, 300 pages of nothing. And I mean nothing other than what he's been saying for all these years. The CIA did it. You know, yeah. no specifics, no nothing, no no, no new evidence, no smoking guns, no nothing, just... 300 pages of drivel, 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 drivel. And I think what it was, what, what, what happened was originally the, the book, the last word was part of his biography or his autobiography. And I think the publishing house said, you know, this is way too long. You know, it might be a better idea if we split these up into two different books. So I don't think he was he was meant to write this great last word, you know, on on the the Kennedy assassination as a, as its standalone book. And when you take away, you know, the autobiographical part, you know, and and you're left with the remnants over here on this side, I think that's what happened. But I don't know. I it was, I you know, like if I could have got my money back for a book, I would have asked for it for this one, most definitely. Cause he got me, he got me. <laughs> nice. Throw in a book review before we really get started. <laughs> oh, we're started, brother. <laughs> we are full in. But anyway, let's rewind. <whistles> and you know, looking into Mark Lane is kind of like a. <sighs> It's kind of like a nebulous black hole that doesn't really have a beginning. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if you're trying to find anything about, out about Mark Lane before 1956, good luck. Maybe except you might find when he was born. Um, but other than that, you know, it's pretty nebulous as far as his – if he had military service, you know, where if he went to law school well – I, d I did see one document that said he served uh, served in the army. I believe it was. Yeah, but what years? Where? You know, I mean, what yeah, branch? Yeah, yeah, not not tons of specifics. I mean, how nebulous is this? But you know, I I guess going back, the earliest that I really found anything on Mr. Mark Lane, and whew, let me pull it up here. Because I thought it really, really interesting, you know, because a couple a couple shows ago, I, I believe it was talking about uh, William Duff mm -hmm. and, and, and various of those allegations and everything. And, and what what Oswald was doing in Clinton, you know, as far as disrupting. The Committee on Racial Equality, the, the the core voting drive, and you know what what basically that that could accomplish, or what they were trying to accomplish by doing that, and 
everybody's going to see the picture for this podcast. And yes, it's Mark Lane in his mugshot looking very, very sad. Um, <laughs> and that comes from the Harlem Corps, which is the Harlem, New York Committee on Racial Equality's attorney. Uh, as was it Freedom Rider? Yeah, he was arrested in 1961 in Jackson as a Freedom Rider. Yeah. Uh, he was arrested with some guy named Percy Sutton. Both men not only represented Harlem Corps, but many of the Freedom Riders. Uh, he was the attorney for the very first arrest of Harlem Corps members in the 1963 City Hall protest. He was a New York State Assemblyman at the time. Uh, he was uh, went on to become a notable attorney for and witness to the civil rights and anti-war movements. And he, here's a, a little known fact about him. In 1968, Mark Lane ran for vice president on the Freedom and Peace Man party ticket with tap dancing Dick Gregory, who I guess was running for president. Uh, they also wrote a book together. Yes, Murder in Memphis about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he would go on to represent James Earl Ray, who was King's assassin before the House Select Committee on Assassinations, among other notable people that we'll get to. Um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, that was 1961, and this is what he was into. You know, he seems to be, to, he seems to me to be um, very politically involved for a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lane, Lane has always, when he was, you know, doing his work in these cases, always been in the public and, you know, doing events, drumming up support, you know, involved with various political groups, which at times, you know, some people find questionable. And, you know, he's always found a way to frame it as being beneficial where, you know, I mean, obviously where most people, you know, they're trying to get people behind their cause. He is always seemed to be out in front. Like for instance, I sent you that interview where he talked with, um, the conservative, the grandfather of conservatism, they call him, uh, um, Buckley, William F. Buckley. Oh yeah. I've seen that. That's a, yeah. And they both had agendas, you know, they both had agendas. They both had political axes to grind, but you can see him and, and, uh, Buckley, both operating with very carefully chosen words and attempting oh, yeah. to trap each other in conversation. You you forgot they were both CIA. Yeah. <laughs> Did I just say that? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go, go ahead, Carmine. Nice. So, which has been claimed about both of them, and we know from some of the documents that there are other possible agendas involved as well. Oh yes. All right. So. Look, we're we're gonna we're gonna step through this. We're gonna okay. S- we're gonna start back way way back, because I mean this show is about the Kennedy assassination. So, I guess we should get kind of topical now, and I guess start us off, Carmine, if you will, with the first document. We're gonna be talking about the uh, the Man Liquor Carcano rifle. Yep. As that according, others... according to Mark Lane. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and well, that's the thing is that you know a lot of problems have developed over the years, which were fueled by some of the accusations that Mark Lane and Roger Craig made that the weapon that was initially uncovered 
recovered from the Texas School Book Depository was a Mauser. And that erroneous description did actually get into at least one official document, and it did get passed around and repeated by others, including Henry Wade, who was the district attorney of Dallas. So, or, yeah, yeah. And also Malcolm Kilduff, the uh, press secretary, said it during during uh, one of the uh, interviews that it was a Mauser. So it, it got passed around and it just developed into this myth that has hung around ever since. There are people still today arguing that it was a Mauser based on some of these original accusations. So before I get into, I, I just want to make it clear that, you know, as much as we want to get to the, the depth, no emotion, there were good things that Lane did. There yes. were some good things. Uh, he did fair, interview yeah. witnesses. Yeah, he did interview witnesses disregarded by the Warren Commission. He did appear in the media and was among the first to suggest any idea of conspiracy. And he did debate officials and celebrities on the feasible problems of the Warren Commission case. He attempted to represent Oswald's interest in the commission, but was denied. So he did do some good things. But there, you know, no one is black or white. No one is. It's shades of gray. He did other things, too, and some of those things we're going to review in the documents that might explain why some of the myths and other things have sprouted up over the years. Yeah, and, and it's not in the documents, but I, I will say that he, he, he did so, you know, he was denied by the War Commission to represent Lee Harvey Oswald's interests, but he did so kind of in absentia in an article written for The Guardian at the time. I think he went through mm -hmm. um, 15 different sticking points that the Warren Commission were accusing Lee Harvey Oswald of, and he took it point by point, and he broke it down and explained, you know, where the problems were with each accusation. Um, and he submitted this paper or article, whatever it was, to the Warren Commission and said, look, if you're not going to have me, at least take this, look at it, you know, look at it. If you have any questions, let me know. But take this into consideration, please. Um, now... <laughs> I've heard the description, uh, you, everybody out there has heard the description of lawyers as ambulance chasers, right? Well, I've seen Mark Lane described as a hearse chaser. Now, that's a very grim description, but considering everything that he, this man's been associated with throughout his career, and look, if you, I, and I don't blame the man, if he's a smart guy, he wants to make a name for himself, he wants to you know, get involved in something he believes strongly in, then, you know, he did what anyone in his position would have done. Any typical lawyer, you know, of course, they want to mm -hmm. become notable. They want to become a name. And you know what I'm saying? How lawyers, they, they take the big cases, even if they're going to lose, just to get their name out there. They want to be mm -hmm. infamous and, and, you know, noteworthy and, they want all the rich people to want to hire them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, especially, you know, he was, he was very, he took on a lot of murder cases, uh, for a lot of, a lot of cases against young people, um, people of color. So, I mean, he did do a lot of good things. Um, but I'm not sure it was all for the right reasons. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. The agendas are not as well known to us. And a lot of people, I think, for in any case, because he did some good things, like a lot of people have, some people ascribe the, almost a sainthood to certain people that they can do no wrong and that anything they've said that was wrong doesn't need to be corrected. But that's not true. 
if we're going to operate off of the facts and the evidence that we can present legally, then it has to be right. And if someone was wrong, they have to correct the error. If they don't, you're just going to lead to decades and decades. I saw a message, uh, I think it was 2013, that Mark Lane had forwarded that was put on JFK Facts, Jefferson Morley's site, where he said that everybody needs to start getting along and not worrying about some of the, you know, the sticking points between us. Well, some of the sticking points are important. Yeah. You know, if we, if we want to be credible, then yeah, we do have to work those things out. We can't just all hold hands and march towards freedom. That's not the way it works. No, sadly, no. You know, but he, he did, I mean, you know, he, look, he, I give him credit. You know, he went straight to, Mar- for, to you know, to Marguerite and was like, look, you know, cause I don't think Marguerite was paying him anything. I mean, she didn't have any money. Um, he was doing it for recognition back then. Um, yeah, well, and he went on speaking engagements and did tours and stuff like that too, as well. So yeah. I mean, it, he got it paid off in the long run as far as establishing his name. Yeah, but I mean, that's not the only reason either. I'm sure, I'm sure he did see an injustice in 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 the way that Oswald's civil liberties were abused, yeah, being trampled on. Yeah. yeah, by not giving a lawyer and you know being murdered in police custody. Uh, you know, these are big red flags. Um. And, you know, he stepped in because there was nobody else to do it. Basically, he saw an opportunity and he took it. And I, I can't blame the man for doing it. And it was the beginning for him of a very long and illustrious career, you know, and, and associating himself with very, very high profile cases. Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, as as we were saying, the one of the big attributions to Mark Lane is the Mauser claim. And I suppose it's, it's more one of the big attributions to Roger Craig that Lane just gave him a forum a few times with his movies and in, in his writings to present that. Right. But according to the evidence that we have, and there's more, I, you know, I wrote that article a while back about a tale of too many rifles where, you know, there's, there's dozens of pieces of evidence. I just tried to give us the three that I thought were very convincing and very strong as far as, or four, one, I don't have a document for, but it's the Alaya film. Um, but, uh, so the first one is from the House Select Committee on Assassinations Administration folders, and it gives a write-up and a summary of the similarity between the weapons, a Mauser and a man like a Hircano. Now, the, the Mauser is of great similarity to the Carcano. The Carcano is also known as the Mauser Paravacino, which right. is the Carcano was a modified design of the Mauser itself. It just had different bolt action and different placement on the gun where everything was. But they look very similar. And all of the Dallas police that initially said that it was a Mauser and the Sheriff's Department employees that said it was a Mauser, besides Roger Craig, all later when they learned that they were wrong, changed what they said. They said they had made a mistake which wouldn't be the first. There were dozens of mistakes made. So I think that it's more than reasonable to understand why a mistaken description would have happened when they didn't do a close inspection and they never touched the weapon. I was saying, yeah, I mean, the gun was stamped made in Italy, you know, but these, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't have really, it wouldn't have really meant anything to them at that point in time. Um, yeah. You know, it was just, could have been a piece of the gun that was made in Italy. They weren't thinking that, you know, it was Italian made carbine, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, 
it's an understandable misidentification, but it, it, yeah. an unfortunate one because it you know it has made its way into the lore. Yeah. Well, yeah, and if you look at the, uh, you know, the problem too is that even Weitzman, who was the one who had most chance of being able to identify it, you know, later when he was under testimony, he stated, you know, it was just a glance. Uh, you know, people have been asking me for a long time ever since, and he just glanced at the weapon. So I don't think it's anyone necessarily to blame. It's just a circumstance that occurred in all the confusion and with the weight of the event that had happened. You know, a lot of those people had no clue that this was going, you know, they, they could have never put themselves into the right frame of mind to work that day after what had happened. So we have to deal with, with the best that we could get, and that's what we dealt with. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's 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 assassination of a president. They're thrown into a blender. You know, you know, it's like a Keystone cop situation because everything's unorganized as hell. The search of the building is unorganized. Locking the building down is unorganized. You know, trying to figure out exactly what happened with people milling around everywhere is, un, you know, it's just unorganized as can be. And of course, people want answers as quickly as possible. They want information as quickly as possible. So, you know, these guys are, are doing the best they can, I guess, in a, in a very, very stressful situation. But Yeah, you know, and not to say that yeah, they're not also, they're, you know, like you and I know for sure, having seen a lot of the documents, there were suppressions. They weren't necessarily, people want to make them nefarious and attach them to the assassination, but they were nefarious attached to other things that they wanted to hide and they didn't want people to find out what they were doing. Yeah, and and, you know, to swing it back to Mark Lane a little bit, you know, he was... I mean, back at this time, you know, he, he's he's kind of creeping. I mean, you know, everybody's seen his little movie with Roger Craig and all that, but this happened after, of course, he made Rush to Judgment. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Rush to Judgment happened after the Warren Commission came out. I think it was in 1966 when he made the movie. Um, yep. Not sure when the book, book was and the published. Movie. I believe the book and the movie were right around the same time. Okay. Yeah, because I think him and Weisberg were having a pissing match about who got the first book out <laughs> or something. Ah. Something to that effect. I, Weisberg wasn't a really big Mark Lane fan. In fact, uh, a lot of these early researchers were not fans of Mark Lane because he didn't really play well with others. He, you know, he wanted the spotlight all to himself. Um, yeah, that's why you you, you never saw Mark Lane with the, any other researchers sharing research uh, back then, or or you know, going on a show with the other researchers. No, it was him versus the world and that's the way he wanted it and that's the way it was yeah lane definitely knew how to promote himself and i would agree that in my opinion too he didn't like to share the spotlight he liked to be the 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 lone expert and the end all be all of the conversation yeah let me let me read you a, a description somebody wrote of mark lane okay okay <laughs> this might make everybody see him in a different light. Were I a dog, I would have growled when Mark Lane came around. <laughs> Watch out for the guys who come in fast, Cookie Pissetti once told me, meaning that the type of guy who comes through the front door in a hurry, talking a busy streak as he breezes up to the bar, is invariably going to borrow money or cash a check that will go to the moon and bounce back. Perhaps it was Lane's speed that turned me off. He moved about the world at a roadrunner's pace, a commercially-minded crusader, developing President Kennedy's murder into a solid multimedia property. 
Lane produced a book, Rush to Judgment, which sold like a Bible beach ball at a Baptist resort. A movie of the same name, which consisted largely of on-the-street interviews with witnesses who said Oswald went this away, not that away. And a long playing record on which, for the price of an LP, you could hear Lane's testimony to the Warren Commission. Consisting, if my recollection is correct, of Lane telling the commission he knew something they didn't know, but he couldn't tell them what it was. <laughs> Lane's paranoia had a showbiz cloak and dagger frosting. While making his movie, he slunk around Dallas using an alias and lying to witnesses about who he really was and what his agenda was. As if that would fool these cons those conspirators who had been smart enough to bump off the president and get away with it. Lane had a tendency to grab bits of evidence like a seagull swooping down to snap up a fish, swallowing it whole without taking time to see if anything was digestible. This procedure got Lane in trouble in 1970 when the Kennedy assassination business was experiencing a recession, and Lane decided to diversify into the fertile field of Vietnam atrocities. He wrote a book purporting to be based on interviews with American soldiers who admitted to various barbarisms and tortures. The gimmick was that the soldiers did not take refuge in anonymity, but allowed Lane to print their names. However, Neil Sheehan, ace war correspondent for the New York Times, revealed in a blitzing review of Lane's book that the muckrakers report of an alleged Nazi working the Vietnam atrocity circuit on behalf of Uncle Sam, one of Lane's soldiers confessed that his father was a former bloodlust SS officer serving as a United States Army colonel in Vietnam, was deficient and that the Nazi did not possess name, rank, or serial number in the U.S. Army. So, there you have, and I'm trying to find out who wrote this, because that's a, I mean, that is brutal. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I'm not even sure who wrote it, to be honest with you. I just found it on the internet. It's, it's just like a, you know, just a, a little bit of a scathing, uh, a little bit of a scathing bit on, on mm -hmm. uh, their impressions of Mark Lane from somebody who knew him. So, not favorable. Well, yeah, no. And, uh, you know, it's going to be mixed review depending, you know. I think, though, that some of the stuff that we have, you know, that's it's worthy of consideration. But I think that some of the other stuff, um, you know, that we're going to get into once we finish with the Mauser uh, speaks to some of what that, some of the allegations that were in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to the witnesses. But, yeah, please continue. Oh, it's okay. Uh, the so this one, uh, I hope that everybody will just check it out. I do believe YouTube has versions, and some JFK resource sites should. It's the Alea film, and it provides footage of the Dallas police suspecting the original weapon found at the scene, and the weapon from all review that has been able to be verified is a Carcano. Now that's important because the whole incidents that Lane and others have tried to suggest of weapon switching, it's pretty hard to do when. Alea was right there on time, you know, just after the discovery, taped them pulling it out, and then gave the tape to his fellow reporter, so it was broadcast, and the Dallas police couldn't alter anything. Right. And we have pictures of a, of a Carcano coming out of the Texas School Book Depository. Yeah. So, uh, the one a big point that people have tried, you know, that I actually went and found this document because I had heard about it so many times, but I never understood why Lane or other people didn't present it. In claiming that the Mauser 
because uh, it is accurate. Lane claims that the CIA, there was a CIA document that used the word Mauser. It doesn't mean it was a Mauser, but it ignores the timing and the context of the document cited. The document's drafted just days later, and it's feasibly based upon the incorrect assumptions of some Dallas police and the public announcement of DA Henry Wade. So the agency got a hold of this. They put it in. They tried to make a summary report to send back to headquarters, and the Mauser got thrown in. Now, the mistakes are just some of the many that Dallas police made that weekend, and the information was often garbled, incorrect, and disputed under the circumstances. The agency also noted that the gun was ordered from Kleins to Oswald's P.O. box, and that used the alias Alec Heidel. But each is an attribute of the Carcano, not the Mauser. And additionally, the agency attributes Oswald's guilt just days after his arrest and membership in a political group he was never a member of. So they could get things wrong. They got some in the same document wrong. Well, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for the FBI to get something wrong. Believe me. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, the agency and the, and the FBI get stuff wrong all the time. <laughs> They're human. It's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I just explained a big, huge FBI gaffe in the Billy Lovelady show with, concerning that stupid mm-hmm. shirt he had on when they told him to come down and get his picture taken. That you know, They told him... No, you know, don't bother wearing the shirt. Just wear whatever you got on. And then when they wrote the report up to send to Hoover, somebody, some idiot wrote in the report, oh, this is what he said he was wearing on November 22nd, 1963. Yeah, thus, they didn't want to go back and re-interview him, maybe. Yeah. You know, thus just creating 50 years of nonsensical horseshit. But anyway, <laughs> that's just me. Okay, so <laughs> final thing on the Mauser. <laughs> Uh, additionally, there is an FBI recording of a meeting of the Citizens Committee of Inquiry, an organization that Lane gave a speech to in 66. And among Lane's problems that he announced to those people uh, that was recorded by a, an informant to the FBI was he discussed uh, that the Dallas police incorrectly called the murder weapon a Mauser when it was proved to have been an Italian-made gun. So that's a little contradictory, don't you think? You know, if he's... If yeah. He's... If he's wanting to try to to make money off of you know the story that it was a Mauser, you know, but yet he's telling everybody that you know, the Dallas police screwed up their identification, which they did exactly. Uh, yeah. So I think initially wow. he agreed with what happened. Yeah, and then he ended up making that movie with Craig, where you know it got pushed home the whole Mauser idea in reverse of what he had already said. Hmm. Unbelievable. Because yeah, I mean, well, it's you know, like you were saying, trying to get his name out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. Look, he ain't doing this for free, brother. He went on like the, the the national tour. I mean, this dude was speaking all over the country, at colleges, mm-hmm. any place that was put up a a billboard outside that said, "Hey, Mark Lane's going to talk about the Warren Commission here," and you know he's charging an admission, right? Yep, I'm sure that's in the files too. <laughs> yeah, and he's talking to any kind of group that'll want to have him and. You know, anybody that'll listen, anybody that'll pay their dollar to come see him, he'll be there. I mean, he was he was all over the country, man, back in the 60s. And, uh, you know, like I just read, you know, things kind of, you know, cooled off a bit, you know, in the early 70s. So he kind of branched out into other things. And then, as we'll talk about later, branched out into even more crazy things. Yeah, uh, the... The thing, another thing is that, you know, it's it's very unfortunate that so much time, I mean, you know, not just this show, but I'm sure hundreds of other shows and thousands of hours 
has had to have been dedicated by people to get all this evidence to show that it wasn't a Mauser because so many people, it just makes it so neat. You know, it's just a neat one, one off line that hopefully you can undo, which is, you know, Lane, Lane liked giving a good line. And it was just one thing you could say that would confound people unless they actually went to the documents and, you know, we're given we weren't given access till the nineties anyway, when the AARB came out. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people accuse Mark Lane of being a lot of things, like a Nazi. I mean, May, May Russell didn't like Mark Lane whatsoever, didn't trust him as far as she could throw him. Um, you know, people accused him be, of being a communist, uh, having communist ties and sympathies, you know, not just for wanting to, you know, represent Oswald, but just because of his just you know the way the way his ideals were you know he was um i guess he wanted you know to help the to help the blacks and to help immigrants to help those less fortunate and and to people back then you know that was looked at as kind of you know socialist or communist ideologies yeah. you, you know yeah well i i think i think that that's true i think we should definitely look at it in the in the color of the actions that were being done you know it's was you know from the documents that you and I reviewed the summary document and the other document that the FBI put out on some of Lane's connections, there are questions that <laughs> I think are are reasonable, questions that are reasonable to ask. But we also got to remember that Hoover had that same thing that Angleton did in the in the Central Intelligence Agency, where he wanted to believe everything was communist. Hoover right. had that same disease of the mind that Angleton did always wanting to blame the communists for everything. But it's, there are multiple connections. I mean, you know, we have the one document, the summary document that states that Mark Lane from 1953 to 1961 was a member of health positions and attendant functions of, or otherwise was associated with the national lawyers guild cited by the house committee on American activities as a communist front. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. But we also have to remember too, that was McCarthy. He was looking too. he wanted to make any oh, yeah. associations with anyone and they, you know, they didn't want Lane investigating the Kennedy case. So this would have been a nice convenient way to get rid of him because oh, yeah. he did have these, he had some associations that, you know, are not unreasonable to think that they're connected to communism. Well, this is what they did back then. If they didn't agree with what you were doing, you're a communist. I mean, it's a communist mm -hmm. organization. It's a communist front. You're a communist, you're a commie lover, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, so we definitely need to balance that out, but there are definitely reasonable questions, you know, because it's, a, you know, Lane was a speaker at multiple events for additional organizations linked to the Communist Party. Uh, the FBI, in their document, state that Lane received Communist Party support in 1962 for his congressional election. Mm -hmm. And he appeared in the Daily Worker as an officer of one of the aforementioned groups. And we know the Daily Worker of fame from Oswald, having read it, that was one of the things the FBI tried to use to link him to communism. Yes, most definitely. So, oh, I'm sorry. What were you saying? Well, it just mentions in the document too what I what I mentioned before about him being associated with the uh, committee on racial equality and the and the the uh, being a free. He was arrested as a freedom rider in Jackson in '61 yep. and '62. He was fined uh, in New York as a scofflaw for having ignored numerous traffic tickets he had received. Uh, so yeah, I mean this guy. He, obviously didn't believe in in you know paying frivolous parking tickets i mean who, how dare they give... <laughs> well, which is kind of yeah which is <laughs> funny because he is a a lawyer so yeah. you would think 
How dare they ticket my Cadillac? God damn it. Again? <laughs> and, you know, it isn't unreasonable. People need to realize, too, that the civil rights movement, you know, there's it's it's so convoluted because of all the various groups that are trying to paint it their own way. But there were some communists who did associate with the civil rights movement who were just wanted to help. You know, they were just normal, like Baird Rustin. Baird Rustin was one of King's big supporters, but he was a former leader of the Communist Party. But he did show up and do the marches and go to jail like everybody else. And he was called all sorts of names by Strom Thurmond and other people in Congress. And, you know, it did hurt. That's why I think, you know, it also the Kennedys, too, they had the occasional aid that would be linked to a group that Hoover didn't like. And he would try to go after them and try to link the Kennedys to communism. Almost oh, definitely. You know, I have, I'm sorry. I was just picturing Mark Lane pulling up, smoking a pipe, and reaching over to his glove box and opening it up, and like 200 traffic Tickets tickets. Fall. Fall. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You never know. Here's another one. Uh, but but yeah. So uh, one of the groups was called Burning Issues, a youth organization affiliated with Advance, which is another group. Both of which have now, and the Communist Party was active for quite some time. Not as much in the '60s as they were in, I'd say, the '30s and '40s, because then the FBI had no clue that they were getting involved in all these groups. But later on, I'd, in Lane's time, I don't know if it was just more of you know obstructionism or using them for their agenda, you know, or maybe he wasn't even directly, you know, they just liked the causes that he was supporting. You know, there's a lot of questions, definitely. Yeah, and just to clear up something real quick, he actually served in the U.S. Army May 1st, 1945 to November 12th, 1946, where he was honorably discharged with the rank of, after five long years in the Army, he finally made it to private first class. I have a feeling he might have said some things that might have got him in trouble in the Army. (laughs) (laughs) You think? I mean, wow. I mean, that's one promotion in five years. I mean... Wow. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. But... Good God. He wasn't a high achiever in the Army, apparently. Apparently not. If he was, he got it taken away. But he still got an honorable. So I guess that's oh, yeah. something. He did better than Oswald. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least he didn't shoot himself in the arm. Didn't throw a drink on a commanding officer, but anyway, that's just some Oswald trivia for you listeners. Yes, or get bumps on his wiener. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> okay, so now, I, uh, if you don't mind, we'll shift gears on that note. Shift gears from uh, from uh, the Communist Party. I think you know we we went through most of the the information that was uh, attributed, and we have to realize too that there are a couple different informants that gave this information but they're unnamed or they're redacted so oh, yeah you know we, we take it with a grain of salt but it, they are worthy notations to at least refer to yeah and then uh from there now this is where it gets a little bit more dicey as far as why he was doing the things he was doing like you said he had, you know whoever made that quote thought that he had given an alias to some of the witnesses because he was trying to protect himself from the conspirators, but it is true that they could have just found out who this other guy was and they did. And they ended up finding out it was him. Yeah. So the motivations are interesting for people, you know, what, whatever people want to attribute his motivations to. But according to Helen Markham and the FBI file regarding the matter, Lane allegedly tricked her into an interview posing as a member of the Dallas police. 
Helen Markham was a witness that saw the tippet shooting or saw the, the man fleeing away as well. And she, according to, to the report, is she's unaware that she was being taped and did not realize it was an unofficial call, that the interview was later used to bolster claims of a second person at the scene of J.D. Tibbet shooting and claims of nefarious reasons for James Markham's injury, despite that James Markham was not home during the incident. Yeah, and thus creating more problems for researchers in the ensuing 50 years uh, mm-hmm. since, since Rush to Judgment. Yeah, the small, bushy-haired other person is not confirmed by anyone else, and Markham changed her story a few times. So she alone is not, in my opinion, a credible witness to base you know all those hopes upon. Yeah, well, just, just as a sidebar here, real quick, Carmine, now that you mentioned this small, bushy-haired person, that made me think of something that I just recently saw. Um, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Uh-huh. And I believe I will credit Danny Vasquez for posting this on Facebook. Uh, the headline is Boy Chased JFK Car, New Dallas Mystery by Ray Corelli, star staff writer, Dallas, Texas. Uh, it says, did someone... Try vainly last Friday afternoon to warn JFK that he was only 10 blocks away from a violent death. From out of the assassination aftermath of shock and grief, there emerged a nagging, agonizing mystery. Who was the bushy-haired youth who chased the president's slow-moving car for more than two blocks, shouting, Slow down! Slow down! For God's sake, slow down! Was he a crank? The world may never know. For just as his furious breakneck sprint carried him abreast of the presidential limousine, an alarmed and angered Secret Service agent spun around, jumped to the street, and hurled the youth bodily into the crowd where he crashed heavily against the curb. He should have been hurt, perhaps even knocked unconscious, a bystander said. Instead, he just vanished. Joe Laird, a veteran Dallas morning news photographer, had begun to chase the Kennedy car along Main Street, the city's principal shopping district, when he first saw the young man across the street and slightly ahead of him. Man, he was running like he really meant it, Laird said later. I was going just as fast as I could, but he was leaving me behind. He kept hollering, slow down, slow down. He was wearing a black raincoat and a crimson shirt uh, open at the neck. His coat was flying out behind him. He carried nothing and just kept yelling. I was keeping an eye on the Secret Service men on the president's car because I didn't know whether I should be doing this running close like that and they were watching me. Then this guy on the other side of the street finally makes it up to the car and the Secret Service agent suddenly realizes there's somebody pounding along behind them. He jumps off and man, he just threw this kid as hard as he could. I tried to see where where he went, but the press bus got between us, and then there were more cars, and by the time I saw where he landed, he was nowhere to be seen. He just disappeared. I asked some people where the guy had gone, but they didn't seem to know. Laird said the the whole incident puzzled him, but he attached little significance to it until after the shooting, (laughs) some two blocks later, when he suddenly remembered it. He also remembered that another morning news photographer had been perched on a nearby building, 
and could have possibly gotten a picture uh, that uh, oh, but when he checked the negatives he found that the rear part of the car where the scuffle had occurred was not in them so that's a crazy story that I had never heard before and this supposedly happened on on Main Street, you know, right before, like two blocks back from where he turned on Houston. It just, the bushy-haired youth thing kind of jumped out at me, you know? Yeah, yeah. But anyway. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I had never heard that one either. I would be interested to see, like, what the, like, the reporter, if the reporter said anything else about it, or if there's, like, a document we can look to to see if anybody got interviewed. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll put that in the weird-as-shit file, and we'll revisit it in the future. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, um, so that's unfortunately the thing that happened with Helen Markham is, you know, another one of those, it's just the things got so twisted after time passing, you know, and people inserting themselves into the case and inventing new names for unidentified figures and pictures that, you know, like they, they can't, you know, like that's one bushy haired youth you that you have described. I'm sure we could find maybe a couple more if we looked at some of the other surrounding things. Well, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's always going to be, it's it's an unfortunate thing. And then, you know, you got people that'll commit themselves to it. And no matter what you show them, you know, no matter how reasonable you try to be, they're always going to stick with it. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, she could have heard this story and I don't know, put this guy that maybe knew something was going to happen and Oswald together at the Tippett murder scene. And who knows? I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, and you know, it's, and I don't blame. Plus, once again, it's the events that are going on. You know, this is the shooting of a police officer, so of course, people are going to be stressed. Their memories aren't going to be perfect. You know, everybody is, you know, getting accused. I'm sure by some officials of not doing a good job as a witness or not saying something that they shouldn't say. So we've got suppression going on as well. So yeah, I could see how the you know some of these things could get morphed into what their current incarnation is. Yeah, but let's get into some of these other people he uh, he lied okay. to. <laughs> Uh, it, I, I, I would say he uh, the, the, he was not uh, did not share all the details with them. <laughs> yes, most definitely. <laughs> like uh, Gene Hill, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, there's a FBI report uh, that was made by Gene Hill, where she's and that was one of the witnesses that testified for the commission for the, the listeners who didn't know that. And she additionally confirms Lane used an alias uh, Robert Blake with her for an interview. Yeah. I think that was the name he was using Robert Blake. Yeah. And then she, then later on she figured out it was Mark Lane when he appeared on a show. Yeah. Yeah. And then the same thing happened with Markham because Markham didn't know who this was. And actually there's a, a, a portion of the document where it talks about at first two men, one of them being Lane who introduced himself as Robert Blake came to her house with Marguerite Oswald trying to get an interview and then she ended up doing, she said she didn't have time then, and they left. So she did this phone interview later thinking it was the Dallas police, and it turned out to be Mark Lane. And then Lane used that recording to show other people to try to bolster the case that he was making against the commission. So you add that to Gene Hill, and then you've got, as you know, at least a couple more. Uh, Warren Reynolds was another witness that Lane tried to contact. Yep. He called the FBI and told them that he was interviewed and filmed by a man calling himself Robert Blake in March 1966. However, he stated since the interview, he learned that Robert Blake was actually Mark Lane. Yes. 
And another, I believe, is Lee Bowers as well. Yep. Yep. Lee Bowers was approached by a man calling himself Blake and did not have time to meet him then. But as we know, most of these people are in Lane's later films, so he must have convinced them somehow to do an interview later after he had used the alias. Right. You know, he at least Bowers is, I know. Bowers and I think Gene Hill is. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, is Markham? I think Markham, I think Markham well. is too, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think eventually he got most of these people to be in his film after they found out who he was. Yeah, but you never know the circumstances behind that. You know, mm-hmm. they could have had well, a, some kind of a legal agreement to, you know. Yeah, I'm sure money. they were paid, I would think. Yeah. Least. yeah. I'm sure they wouldn't have done it unless they were paid some in some form or fashion. Well, especially after the guy introduces himself as one person and then reveals to you later he's someone else. Right. You know, it could be for an innocuous reason, but that isn't the most genuine or forthright thing to do. Yeah, I'm sure he he would have had to meet a cop with him face to face after that and was like, look, you know, I was just trying to protect myself from, you know, all the crazy stuff going on here because, look, they're trying to they kill this guy, they, they killed this guy, they're trying to kill this guy, and on and on and on. Yeah, so I think we definitely have some inconsistencies as far as his treatment of some of the witnesses goes. There's definitely some questions about the communist ties of groups that were connected to the communists. I don't necessarily think it's as nefarious off the bat as Hoover and the FBI did. Right. But they could have influenced him, and that's important because even though he wasn't allowed to have an official role, there were always rumors going about communist influences on the case. And communists inserted into the case. Uh, Carlos Bringer once erroneously claimed that Norman Redlich, who was one of the uh, members of the of officials, were, was a communist, trying to actually com- uh, c- compromise the commission's report before it even came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, you got to remember, Lane is is a, he's a northern guy from New York, which is a very racially you know diverse area. Even back then, it mm-hmm. was you know especially yeah. Harlem and. And all of that, you know, and, and it, a lot of this criticism is, is, is coming from people from the South where there's still, you know, civil rights battles going on and, you know, people not liking uh, other folks for whatever reason and blaming everything on the communists. And that's just how they were in the South back then. You know, and yet you then you have this progressive, you know, far left lawyer coming and, and, and you know, of course, he's going to be accused of, of being a communist or you know, a socialist or, you know, something like that. But but he did have a lot of connections, you know. it's Oh, yeah. Not to say that they, yeah, not to say that they denote, kind of like Oswald, you know what I mean? None of those connections, though, if we go into them, might be, they might be tenuous yeah. at best. But he was leading a couple of groups that were known to be fronts for the Communist Party. But at that point, the Communist Party wasn't as powerful as it once was, so maybe they were trying to influence. You know, I would imagine some people who like to believe the communist scenario with JFK would say that they were trying to keep it away from the communists. But we know that that wasn't the case because officials wanted to blame it on them from the beginning, some officials in the CIA and FBI. Yeah, yeah. And now to, to move the lane timeline forward a little bit, you know, we'll just re- recap a little bit. Okay, you know, he, he volunteered to defend Lee Harvey Oswald before the Warren Commission, but they refused him. All right, we know that. He was then retained in 64 by Marguerite Oswald to defend her son's interests and was the only witness to request an open hearing. These events made him persona non grata with the commission. Later, he worked with Jim Garrison in New Orleans on the Clay Shaw case. 
Uh, he has written widely on the assassination. His first book on the subject was Rush to Judgment, uh, which was published in August 66. And then in 1968, he wrote A Citizen's Descent. He then wrote uh, the screenplay or co-write the screenplay for Executive Action, which was a movie that was made uh, back in the early 70s about the Kennedy assassination based loosely on the events, you know. Um, I forget Which who is unfortunate. Uh, well, I was going to say it's unfortunately also the movie that uh, inspired Richard Charnin to make his list. Yes, yes, the, the infamous death list. Uh, he actually wrote a screenplay for Plausible Denial, too, but... Uh, it never it never became a movie. Um, he's produ- he produced two documentary films, Arrest of Judgment and Two Men in Dallas. And he also has written one play, The Trial of James Earl Ray. Uh, Mark Lane was also active in trying to understand the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. He was James Earl Ray's lawyer, uh, then later wrote uh, a book with Dick Gregory entitled Murder in Memphis. And... You know, I just find it, it's mind-blowing that he he wanted to be Lee Harvey Oswald's lawyer. He manages to be James Earl Ray's lawyer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then, I mean, he was busy in the 70s, boy. Don't get, don't get it twisted. Because he was a lawyer for several of these people associated with the, the House Select Committee on Assassinations. One in particular that I'll tell you about, that I, that I know about, um, is Robert McCown. Of course... Castro's gun runner. Mark Lane was his lawyer. Okay. And when Robert McCown was supposed to go talk to the HSCA, Mark Lane wasn't there. He was doing something else, which we'll get to in a second. Um, And Robert McCown was not too keen on talking to the HSCA without his lawyer present. And he told them as much. And he started taking the Fifth Amendment. He started pleading the Fifth every time they asked him a question. And they finally said, look, sir, we're not going to wait for your lawyer. You're not on trial here, okay? You have immunity. You need to answer our questions, okay? There's nothing that can happen to you. You know, your lawyer doesn't – we're not going to reschedule just so your lawyer can be here. There's nothing that, you know, he can advise you one way or the other on that really matters. Um, So please answer our questions, which he finally relented and did. But – for McCown, Mark Lane brokered, okay, a fifty thousand dollar book deal and a hundred thousand dollar movie deal for his story. Now, the book and the movie, of course, never got made, but somebody uh-huh. bought it, you know, and uh, Mark Lane was a part of it. Now, the reason Mark Lane couldn't make it, okay, to the HSCA hearings is because he was in Guyana. And you might say, what the hell was he in Guyana for? Well, there was a little place down there y'all might have heard about called Jonestown or the People's Temple. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Michael, J- Michael Benson noted in Who's Who in the JFK Assassination that Lane's role in the uncovering of a JFK conspiracy is made more intriguing by the fact that Lane was a lawyer for Jim Jones People's Temple in Jonestown, Guyana. And managed to be one of the very, very few people to escape the bizarre community just before the massacre. And I mean, running into the jungle, kind of barely escaping the massacre. According to researcher John Judge, in 1986, 
Jonestown was not a religious community at all, but rather a part of the CIA mind control program known as MK Ultra Experiment. What do you think about that, Carmine? Well, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find interesting that Mark Lane escapes Jonestown. And I mean, he was one of, I think him and one other guy made out, made it out of Jonestown with the money in hand into the jungle and escaped on foot. And I mean, one of the few, because they weren't letting people walk out of there, Carmine. They were yeah, shooting. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> okay. yeah, I've, I've, I've reviewed, those are pretty horrific. The Jonestown tapes and everything. Oh yeah. To, yeah. It's. It, no, it was a totally, you know, a totally horrific situation that a lot of people, you know, once again, kind of almost in the way of the Kennedy assassination, there's very little known about the specifics at the end, even with the witnesses and what evidence could have been gathered. But Lane, we do know, for a time supported Jim Jones and said that, you know, he he wasn't a bad person, he didn't have, and we know that not to be the case, so he definitely made a misjudgment at the very least. Yeah, or, you know, as John Judge said, something happened. I mean, because how, how do you make that many people commit mass suicide unless there's some kind well, of, you know, mental manipulation going on there? Well, I agree. I agree. It's a very cult-like mentality. I just don't think in, in my, you know, and I would I would welcome your thoughts on it too, Rob. And in, in my experience looking at the agency, if they're going to do something like that, they don't make it so public. No, I agree. I agree. It would have been a small group. It would have been off. You know, if they wanted to, they would have compartmentalized it. They wouldn't have. Like Koresh is another, I think, great example to link towards Jonestown. You know, they were just so sold on what their leader was saying that a lot of them just let themselves be killed for it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an easy, it's an easy accusation to throw around. But once again, when it comes to proof of documentation of them, you know, them continuing the MK ultra program into this and, and, and it being some kind of a, a branch of that to see what they could get away with or, you know, whatever it, it might be. We don't know. You know, I just think it interesting that Mark Lane is, is one of the few to make it out of Jonestown with all the money. But that's yeah. just me. No. And I've, yeah. And, and I've heard of, well, no, I've heard multiple people question that. And, the manner of his exit and everything. And the problem is, is that, yeah, with, unless we can get some, you know, detailed reports from other witnesses and, you know, even, or I don't think the whole thing is, I think so many people that are alive, that might be alive still from that are probably so messed up about the event. It's going to be hard to get any actual testimony out of them. Oh yeah. So then let's move on to the eighties. We have the spotlight trial when, uh, E. Howard Hunt was suing the the the, uh, the spotlight. I guess Mark Lane was a lawyer for the Liberty Lobby at the mm-hmm. time, and either coincidentally or they hired him specifically for his expertise in dealing with elements like this or people accused of being you know associated with the Kennedy assassination. How whatever the reason, um, I'm sure it made Lane's day to be suing. Or, or to, well, not not be suing, but uh, being defending. Able, yeah, being able to defend the Liberty Lobby against E. Howard Hunt, depose him, and get him under oath, and and various things like this. Um, 
because actually E. Howard Hunt won the first, he won the initial trial, then appealed it. Um, and the appeal is when Mark Lane steps in and uh, gets it overturned. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, uh, that was a useful thing that he stepped in and did as far as showing that legally it is not unreasonable to suggest that people like E. Howard Hunt or Frank Sturgis or any of the other people named could have been part of the assassination. I think the problem happens when people take that and then equate it to not people who were like, but people who are <laughs> E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis. They, you know, they, he didn't prove who killed Kennedy and he didn't prove that either of those guys was involved in a conspiracy. He just proved that it's not unreasonable to state it publicly. Right. Right. You know, and, and I mean, you know, Lane's famous for the, I guess the assertion, you know, really getting the assertion out there in the, in the American public that, you know, shots were fired from the grassy knoll. You know, he gives us these supposed witnesses. He gives us Gene Hill. He gives us Charles Brim. He gives us Lee Bowers, you know, all these people that, that the Warren commission didn't really do anything with or ask the right questions to, or, you know, take it any further. And, you know, he has done a lot of good stuff for the case. And I'll give him that. It's just that when you look at it in a in a larger sense of everything mm -hmm. th that this dude has been associated with over the years, it's a little mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. And there's definitely, yeah, a trail of self-promotion throughout it, which oh. I suppose you can't avoid at some levels, you know, when you get to certain levels of fame or infamy in some, you know, circles that that's going to happen. But I think that, you know, we fairly demonstrated that it wasn't always a very straightforward manner that things were done. Yeah. And I mean, it's another opportunity for him to write a book about what he did. <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. You know, because out of the, the Liberty Liberty, God damn it. The Liberty Liberty. Oh shit. <laughs> I can't say it. Liberty God. lobby. Uh... <laughs> The Liberty <laughs> Lobby trial, uh, you know, he got to write Plausible Denial, um, mm -hmm. which was a huge hit because it came out right about the time the JFK movie did. And, of course, so did a lot of other books. But when you're Mark Lane and, and, and you're writing a book about the Kennedy assassination and, uh, you know, it's going to sell. Believe that, especially oh, yeah. on the heels of the JFK Act and the JFK movie when everything was just... You know, there wasn't a, a a higher time in in in, in history, to, you know, as far as the assassination goes. Yeah, no, it, it, and it, he has excellent timing based on <laughs> how things have come out. And no doubt, how he's been involved in the community. No doubt, and he, and he look, he's still alive and kicking. He, he he's living in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is about an hour away from me, and uh, <laughs> nice. And give him a call, see what he says. Yeah, he just, he just had a birthday, just turned 89 years old, um, which is not bad, you know, for all that pipe smoking and, and, and all that stuff he did back then. I mean, he's it didn't hurt him one bit, yeah. you know, <laughs> and he still looks good. <laughs> so God bless him, you know. <laughs> I yeah, just... no, I, like I said, you know, the, the, that's why I think that we were, we have been in all of our assessments, but I think in this one definitely – we have been more than fair to say that there are questions, there, there are good and what we would consider bad things that have occurred. Yeah. And, and, you know, Mark Lane, if you ever hear this, 
I just want to thank you for everything that you've done for the Kennedy assassination and, and, and all that and, and trying to get Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, some representation and, but I'd really like my money back for your last book, sir. Uh, <laughs> was not impressed whatsoever with that. Although it did have a very cool cover, the Alton, Alton seven, pretty cool. But, uh, yeah. So that's about it, huh? Karma. Did we cover yeah, it? Yeah, I'd say, well, you know, I'm sure if you ever want to do a part two, we can find some more stuff because that was another thing I thought that was interesting was that a lot of the files came from Weisberg. That Weisberg was collecting files and actually had a file on Mark Lane, kind of like the FBI did. Well, look, back then, he, they, look, they, Weisberg was no fan of Mark Lane. He, he wrote many, uh, letters to people, including Garrison, about being wary of Mark Lane and, and letting him be a part of the investigation. And look, all these guys, I mean, Back then, David Lifton was looked at as the Jim Fetzer of today. Okay, I mean he was the guy with wow. kooky. He was the guy with the kooky theories. Okay, you know that people were dressed up as trees on the grassy knoll shooting guns. Okay, this is this is the kind of crap that he was spewing back then. Um, you know, but like I said, the, out of the first generation researchers, you know, a lot of these guys didn't like to work with each other. I mean, Weisberg didn't mind it as long as you were forthcoming and upfront with him and, and not trying to be shady or hide stuff or, you know, what he would view as an affront. Uh, you know, yeah. he, he, he didn't mind sharing what he found at the archives um, whatsoever with anybody, but you know, he didn't like it when people would steal his work <clears throat> and not give him credit. Um, things like this. And, you know, when you when you piss somebody off like that, they're going to keep track of what you, what you're doing, most definitely. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess. And then it becomes, and that's it's unfortunate, but it seems that that has repeated itself in a lot of instances where you have you know researchers unfortunately sometimes doing as much research on other researchers rather than the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, uh, and you know, there's a lot of files there if you if people want to go look for themselves. Um, Oh yeah, feel you free know, over at the <laughs> the Weisberg archives for sure. There's there's a nice little Mark Lane folder over there. But uh, look, man, I guess that's it. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Carmine. Please feel, please feel free to plug away at all your stuff so people can find out more about what you're doing. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, you can find the book on tpak.com, t-p-a-a-k.com. You can also find it at neamg.com, Neapolis Media Group's website, neamg.com. You can find it in a special section on the Long Gunman Podcast, which is awesome. I truly That's appreciate right. that, Rob. And you can uh, you can see it on Amazon. It's available in Kindle and paperback editions, Two Princes and a King, a concise review of three political assassinations. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Carmine. I greatly appreciate it. You hang on the line for me, okay? Sure. Talk us out. Everybody, head over to tlgpodcast.com where I will put up links to all the documents that we talked about here today and some interesting pictures uh, for you to check out. Um, I guess that's it. I mean, there's a donate link there if you'd like to help out the show. If you'd like to be a patron of the show, head to patreon.com backslash the Lone Gunman Podcast.
Also, modifywatches.com backslash the Lone Gunman Podcast. If you'd like to get yourself a cool, stylish, hip watch and support the show that way, I would greatly appreciate it. Or just please share the show, okay? It's not that hard, people. Share a link. Just post a link on your social media. I would greatly appreciate it. And make sure you hit the like button. Um, it gets me exposure on Spreaker and, and you know, wherever podcasts are, that always helps. A thumbs up, a like, hit the like button, a little heart button, whatever it is, a favor, favorable review on iTunes. Um, anything helps, and I would greatly appreciate it to help get the word out. And I will have, let's see, another member of Neapolis Media Group on next week, I do believe. Mr. Charles Cliff, I think, is going to come back on the show, Carmine. That's great. And we are going to be talking about the how Hollywood has treated the Kennedy assassination. And we're going to be getting to talk about, you know, movies, TV shows. I want to really talk about 112263, which I've been watching and I'm enjoying very much so. Um, so make sure you tune in for that next week. That's it. This some bitch is in the can, beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. Oh, another one bites the dust.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.